I've got family here, so this is like a performance review. I know, that's why it's performance review. Got to plow some new ground. Uh, I know we have several missing um, and, uh, and traveling for the break, um, so we hope that they'll be back with us soon. But uh, we're glad all of you are here. Get myself turned on so I can hear myself or anyone else can hear me. We're concluding uh, a series this morning uh, about being clothed with Christ and clothed in the various aspects of our spiritual walk. And we've taken a few weeks to look at at what that looks like and what clothing is. I mean, this metaphor that is extended throughout all of Scripture, we see uh, the writers of the Old Testament and New Testament alike talking about being clothed in something or putting on something or being adorned with or girded with. This metaphor, which probably meant a little bit more culturally in the context of, of Semitic people and the clothing they wore for certain events and certain duties and certain tasks, it still speaks to us today in the context that what we wear is for a purpose, whether to, uh, for the weather outside or the event that we're going to, or maybe it's just expressing our mood for the day. Uh, we, we use clothing in very much the same way, and the idea of putting something on and that expressing something about our spiritual life, such as being clothed with humility that we talked about a few weeks ago, or whether it's for a practical purpose because we're going to battle like the armor of God, or if it is uh, the, the emotion of joy, like being clothed in salvation, we see that being tied to the expression of joy in Scripture. And today we conclude by talking about something that's very similar to what we talked about last week with being clothed in salvation, and that is to be clothed in righteousness. But this one's a little bit different still. Oftentimes what we wear in our clothing is to provide us access to something. We have in our culture kind of a uniform that we wear if you work in certain industries. If you're a business person, you work in an office building, uh, you wear a suit, coat and tie to work. That's kind of the uniform. It actually descends from military garb. Uh, we have a uniform that's generally accepted in our culture as being what we wear in certain circumstances for certain activities. Uh, police officers wear uniforms. They wear uniforms because that gives them access places. If you don't have that badge on and you don't look like you belong, you don't go behind the yellow tape. So the things we wear give us certain levels of access. I don't know if you've ever been to a really fancy restaurant or a really nice uh, venue, but there are some out there that you have to meet a certain dress code in order to go in. Maybe it's a coat and tie for the men or, or, or something like that, but there are places out there where if you're not wearing the right clothes, you don't get to go in. And those who don't have the right clothes, who can't go in, Well, they're on the outside, and they're now ashamed and left out and marginalized and vulnerable. That's the way that so much of our society and our culture works. So when we're not wearing the right clothes, we no longer have access. We see a picture of this in Scripture. If we look at the prophet Isaiah, and we, we talked about this in our Wednesday night class in the last couple of weeks as we've been discussing Jesus and his various names and various roles, we were talking about Jesus as a high priest and why that role is filled by 
by Christ. But we referenced a verse in Isaiah, in chapter 6. And if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1 there, and read about a vision that Isaiah had and his reaction to it. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Before we get to Isaiah's reaction... What a scene. What a scene. There's angels flying around, and they're singing praises to God. Um, and this is a scene we see in Scripture quite a bit. It's a bit amazing to us. And just think of these angels and what they're expressing as being something they can't help. I think sometimes we are unsure of the picture of God that we see because there's constant praise, it seems, being demanded. It's not so much the praise being demanded so much as in the presence of God, such praise cannot be helped. That's the example we see whenever these type of events occur. Now, Isaiah looks at this, and he's blown away. And he says to himself, Woe is me, I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is recognizing something that all humanity has to recognize at a certain point. And all of humanity did recognize in the time of Moses and the old law because that's why they had a law. He looked at God and said, I, I, can't, I can't be here. I can't be where he is. He saw the holiness and purity of God and said, well, I'm in a bad spot because I don't belong in his presence as an unclean person, and I'm in a nation full of unclean people. What am I supposed to do? So much of the old law was designed to remind people how ugly sin is. We talked in our Wednesday night class about the altar, and on the altar, offerings were made, sacrifices. It's covered in, and in, in, like I said Wednesday night, this isn't barbecue. Okay, this isn't this you know this isn't uh, pork on the smoker. This is this is something else. This is kind of ugly. It's hair and blood and bone and flesh, burned, stuck, rotting on this altar. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't look good. And they weren't allowed to clean it. You didn't clean the altar off. You made the sacrifice and it was left. All the remnants of whatever you sacrificed was there. Over time, and the smell and the sight and the disgusting nature of what that looked like was all a reminder of just how ugly and grotesque sin is, that it requires this just for God to have the patience for us to talk to him. What a horrible, horrible thing. And God reminded his people that sin is ugly and it can have nothing to do with him. He is pure. Sin is ugly. And we have this juxtaposition, a gap that must be bridged somehow. We do not possess the clothes required to enter into the presence of God. This is a fundamental problem and a fundamental conflict in the story of God and his people. 
And just like that person trying to get into that fancy restaurant or that nice venue, you don't own a jacket, you're out of luck. We don't have the righteousness required to be in the presence of God. So what do we do about it? Well, if you look at Revelation, we see a couple of different times visions that John has in the book of Revelation where someone is putting on clothes and they are white, which is a symbol of purity, and they are made white how? Well, they're washed in the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ. An obvious imagery and metaphor to describe that it is Christ and that by virtue of his death that what is ugly about our sin is washed away. Even in the early part of Revelation when John is, is writing down these letters to these churches and, and to one of them he says, hey, your clothes have gotten dirty. You've gotten dirty with the world. You need to wash them again. It is not of their toil and sweat that their clothes are made pure. It is because they have access to the blood of the Lamb, which makes them pure and makes them clean. We see a lot of people listed in Hebrews chapter 11 who are by faith doing things in service to the kingdom. And you can trace some of those things back to the actions that they did. If you go to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. It wasn't what Abraham did but it was in the doing because of his faith that it was counted as righteousness. Did him doing it make him righteous? God made him righteous, credited it to him as righteousness. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys. Job himself said, I put on righteousness and it clothed me, and my justice was like a turban and a robe. The metaphor of clothing oneself in righteousness is clear throughout Scripture. And yet, in most cases, it is not presented as something we put on, but something that is put on us, that by entering into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father God, it is bestowed upon us. The things that we've talked about in this series as things that we put on most often can be described as spiritual disciplines. We put on humility. We have to work at that. God can bless us with the strength and guide us, and by, by his wisdom we can find it, but we have to do that. The armor of God, those things are things that we've got to get good at. We've got to work at every day choosing to put that on to be prepared to do battle in a spiritual war. And the joy of salvation that we wear, some days it's harder to be joyful than others. We have to work at it. But righteousness, righteousness may produce spiritual discipline, but in and of itself is not the product of spiritual discipline. There is not enough that we can do to win that crown of righteousness, to put on those clothes of righteousness. We can't go back to our closet and find the jacket that gets us in to the private dining room. It's the owner of the dining room that puts the coat on us and lets us in. Being clothed in righteousness means we are handed the proper attire to be a part of the kingdom. And then we live accordingly and through spiritual discipline and obedience put on all the rest of that that comes with it. 
We have been on the outside looking in. And by the grace of God, we've been given what we need to enter, to be a part of the family. The question is really not about that, though. I think we all kind of know that. The question is, what are you going to do about it? How does that change the way we live, and how does that change the way we look at the world? H.G. Uh, Spafford, Horatio Spafford, wrote one of the most well-known Christian hymns, It Is Well With My Soul. And we, we sing it here. Um, it's one of my favorites. H.G. Uh, Spafford had a really interesting life, a Christian man and a Christian family. He lived in Chicago, not too far from here. Uh, he had an investment property in the northern part of the city, North Chicago, uh, that was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. Lost his entire investment. Financially was damaged by it. That was in, I want to say 1871, somewhere in there. Historians in the room can correct me. 1871, he loses this big investment. Meanwhile, a couple years later, his family, they're going to travel over to England, take a vacation. One of their friends who was a, a well-known preacher at the time was going to be doing a campaign over there, and they wanted to go hear him and support him. But business affairs kept him stateside, and he sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him. And the ship that they were on sank in the Atlantic Ocean. Four daughters killed, ages 12, 7, 4, and 18 months. Can you imagine losing four young children? His wife survived. She made it to England. She sent a telegram back that simply said, saved alone. man who was a faithful servant of God found himself having lost almost everything. So he boards a ship to join his wife in England as planned. He has the steward wake him up as they cross the spot where his daughters perished. And he stood on the boat in the moonlight and words came to him that he wrote that were later set to music by Philip Bliss that became It Is Well With My Soul. I know that story, and some of you may know that story. And when you hear that song or sing that song, you might think of that moment, a man who is suffering the weight of tragedy and the pain of loss in the face of it, saying, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And that's an encouraging message. In the face of whatever comes my way, I'm going to trust God. That in and of itself is a worthy message. But there's a second verse, and it's not always one we sing. It's not in all the hymnals. It's got like six verses to it if you read the poem. We only sing a few of them. But there's a second verse. And in that second verse, Brother Spafford reveals the actual reason why he is able to be faithful and strong in the face of tragedy and loss. And until I heard that second verse, I thought this was just a nice, uplifting, encouraging hymn about trusting God through your trials. But Spafford really hits you right in the heart when he writes the words, Though Satan should buffet, though trials may come, let this blessed assurance 
control. That Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. If you wonder where Spafford got the strength to face the world in spite of financial loss, the loss of children, the pain that comes with tragedy, he recognized that he was clothed in righteousness. God looked upon him as he looked upon all parts of humanity and said, there's nothing they can do. They've got no hope. And he gave Christ to shed his blood to die for us. Nothing in this world can hurt me. Nothing in this world can destroy me. Because the only thing that has the power to destroy me has already been beaten because Christ died for me. Thomas read from Romans this morning and Paul fills that letter up with beautiful ideas about faith and grace and righteousness. And he says the same thing. He says the same thing. That Christ, while we were still sinners, died for us. Now, it's hard to find someone that would die for a good person. How hard do you think it is to find someone to die for someone like me? I hear people sometimes say, well, I hope I go to heaven. I hope I'm, I'm hoping I'll make it there. I think I will. If you accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you believe in Him, you call on His name and follow Him into obedience in the waters of baptism, you're going. And to say maybe, I, I've worked to not say that anymore. And I know people hedge because, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the judge. Fine, I'm not the judge. But I do believe in what was promised to me. God paid for me. And I think he overpaid, if I'm being honest. But he did it anyway. I'm going to be there because he said I'm going to be there. And I'm going to live every day to live up to that promise because somebody stepped out to me in the cold, dark street and put something on me that got me inside. Nothing else in this world matters because I was made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been clothed in his righteousness. And everything else we put on the rest of our life is in response to that. It's in an effort to live up to that. It's in obedience. It's in discipline. It's in a faithful Christian life. Why? Not because we're so great, but because somebody called us out of darkness. He saw us helpless and hurting and hopeless, and he saved us. How can I live any different in that reality, with that knowledge? To be clothed in Christ as we read so much throughout Scripture about being clothed with so many aspects of faithful living, the heart of all of it, to be humble, to be clothed in the armor, clad in the armor of God, to be clothed in the joy of salvation, all of it rests in one simple fact, that God 
in his love and compassion, gave his son so that we could be more like him. He didn't just call us up to where he is. He came down and brought us up to where he is. That's an amazing God. Kind of makes sense why he made that whole Tower of Babel thing fall apart, right? That was men trying to get up to where God was. Why did he put a stop to it? Because that's not the way that it's going to work. You can't get up to where I am. I need to come down there and bring you up. That's what makes our God different. And that's what makes us different. That's why we live different. We are clothed. We're clothed. We don't just go through ritual and routine and follow rules because we believe our way is better than the alternative. We live according to a standard set by God because he clothed us. And what we wear expresses who we are. It reflects our emotion. It it testifies to the spiritual realities that we're living in. We have been clothed in Christ, with Christ, and with righteousness that was not our own. And we should live like it. This morning, if you are struggling on the journey to live like it, you are not alone. That is a daily battle. And just like every day we go to our closet and decide what we're going to put on for the day, and it might be the right thing, and it might be the wrong thing. Sometimes I put on the wrong thing. But every time, it's a choice we make daily about what we're going to say about ourselves and what we're going to be prepared for. And that can be a tough decision, and that can be a tough journey. And we need help, and that's why we have each other, to walk together and to carry one another. And if you're not a Christian and you need to become one, then you have an opportunity this morning to be clothed, to be made whole, and to be adopted into that family as all of us have been. If you have a need this morning, come now as Marvin leads us and we stand together and sing. There's a fountain free for you and me. Let us haste, oh haste to its brink. There's a fount of love from the source above. And he bids us all freely drink. Will you come to the fountain? the throne of life.